始め Legionaries, I, it is my distinct pleasure to re-invite um, our friend here, Celtic War Chief. Uh, we're going to be discussing today Peter Zihan's uh, section on China from the Joe Rogan podcast. Now, recent events have become more salient as um, lethal aid is being seriously discussed between the PRC and Russia. Um, but I think there are more dynamics to this that we should take into account and uh, thinking about the future. And luckily enough, our friend here is an expert in China as well, and he will be commenting on it. So first of all, thank you so much, uh, War Chief, for coming back on. Yeah, no problem, man. Perfect, perfect. All right, well, I think he started with, uh, you know, Peter Zihan made a lot of spurious claims, but one of the most interesting things that he said was the demographic situation. As I'm sure everyone knows in the audience, um, China has a legacy policy of the one-child policy, which in the 90s was repealed to a two-children policy, right? Um, however, that messes up your population pyramid, and um, the, the culture in China is to favor the male to pass on the family name, and so there was a lot of infanticide of women. So there's a huge disproportionate amount of men to women, um, and so it causes a weird population pyramid. Um, now, what are the ramifications of this, War Chief? Yeah, so the ramifications is like, on the long term, <clears throat> they're going to have to make uh, gradual uh, shifts and changes towards a different kind of economy, uh, economic model. The model that they've been using for the past 20, 30 years or more has been basically a manufacturing powerhouse with the cheapest labor to offer the global market. And that's why so much manufacturing, especially from the United States, flooded into China and to access that labor market. And that, of course, made them very wealthy. You know, it, it created China's boom. And, you know, the PRC has used those funds in every way possible to not only strengthen their regime, uh, but also their uh, forward thinking and being in moving, knowing that they're going to have this uh, demographic issue because of the child uh, family policies, they knew that they had to get set up for that future. So what does that future look like? Essentially, you know, they're going to be going down from over a billion people to well under a billion uh, to around 600 million, maybe less. Because another factor I would throw in there is China, you know, advancing in its basis as a nation has also had the same issues that any other nation has with, you know, a culture that's becoming more modern and the plagues of modernity. So you also have women 
uh, not having as many children or not having children at all because they're, you know, prioritizing their career more or what have you, right? So it's probably going to be around $600 million or so. Which, by the way, it's still tremendously more than the United States will be in the same time frame, okay? Unless we just import everybody around the world, which it seems like what we're doing, but I digress. So one of the ways that the PRC has done or is, is pushing to move and what do you need to do when your demographics are moving like that where you have less young people and you, um, you're going to have not as robust of a middle class, um, things of this nature, what you need to do is you need to leverage your financial, uh, your financials, your financing, your purchasing power, your um, and then your trade agreements, meaning the trade that you have established right now, all these different relationships with these countries, you need to kind of leverage them and move them to a different model where you're not making the stuff anymore, but you've gotten enough of a population to become uh, and enough of a financial stability um, to be consumer-led. So what that means is they need to they need to advertise to other nations that, you know, they have a very stable culture, they have a very stable, uh, healthy um, culture in the sense of law, legal, uh, you know, legal disputes, you know, how, 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 how do they, um, when they trade with another country, and I'm, I'm now the country that's making this stuff, China is basically coming and saying, hey, we're going to buy it now instead of, you know, being a competitor to you like we used to be. So we want you to make the stuff, and then we're, our country is going to be purchasing it. Well, that other nation needs to know that, you know, if there's a financial problem, if there's a dispute or a trade problem, that they're going to be able to, like, work with the Chinese government and resolve that problem. So other nation, if you're a consumer-led nation, you need to you need to show them that you have the money to purchase and that that money is going to be worth something for you, meaning you now have to uh, exchange your... You know, let's say, um, how can I make this more clear? Um, but so you know, you have in, let's say you have uh, Indonesia, one of the one of the nations in, in South China. They're now, you know, let's say they have a better population um, with more younger people. They're now going to be building, you know, new, all this stuff that China used to build, right, or a portion of it. Well, if I'm Indonesia and I'm building all these widgets and 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 um, mid grade or low grade manufactured goods. I want to sell it to somebody who's going to uh, help help my help my purchasing power in the global economy the most. So, is that a U.S. dollar? Is the U.S. dollar going to be what's going to give me the biggest purchasing power after I sell my stuff to them, or is it going to be the Chinese uh, yen? Right. So, how China and U.S. you know persuades those countries? Okay is that, hey, our demographic can buy more of your stuff, the volume, okay, and my dollar, my Chinese yen or U.S. dollar, gives you greater purchasing power in the global economy, okay? And my country is stable, it's healthy, there isn't any, you know, strife, there isn't any uprisings or anything like that. If disputes happen between your companies and my companies, you know, we have courts and things like that where these disputes are handled and handled fairly, right? So Indonesia needs to know that 
I'm going to, you know, in the the firms that are going to be making these manufactured goods, you need to know that, you know, who they're dealing with, it's going to be fair treatment, right? That's the consumer-led model, basically, in a nutshell, is that a nation making the goods and then selling the goods back to this consumer-led nation get all kinds of different perks, predominantly in... um, you know, purchasing power and uh, from the currency exchange that takes place. Okay, so in China, to, in order to move there, they have to leverage all the trade relationships that they have with all these countries to the best of their ability, and show them that they're going to be a fair partner, that they're going to get a lot of purchasing power from that Chinese yen. Okay, and as well as other perks, for example. The United States, one of the big perks that we would leverage is that we have this great big U.S. Navy that can patrol your seas and help you with your security. Well, the PRC is doing exactly what the United States has done over the, over the same uh, years. is It's transitioning to a consumer-led economy. It's going out there and building new trade agreements, hence the... Um, Belt and Road Initiative, where they've been investing in all these Central Asian countries, South Asian countries, African countries, the Middle East, uh, building all kinds of trade relationships, building infrastructure. And then what else have they been doing? They've been building one of the world's largest navies. China is the world leader in shipbuilding and ship tonnage. And they're building one of the largest navies. And so they're basically copycatting the same kind of model, but just, you know, with their spin on it, uh, obviously. And that is, you know, they go to countries and say, hey, you're going to make the goods, the manufactured goods, we consume them, okay? In exchange, you get purchasing power of your Chinese yen, and some further, uh, you know, further perks would be, you know, infrastructure investments in your nation and, you know, military security of your area. So that means, you know, we're going to build a little drone base in your country, that's exactly what we've done. We've gone around all over the world, building bases, building uh, security contingent forces throughout the nation, patrolling people's seas, sending them money to build infrastructure. The only difference between China is that when they build infrastructure in another nation, they actually send Chinese uh, folks and go and build that infrastructure, whereas the United States is more like high-paid contractors that go and guide or... Um, only do the most intensive um, labor and then rely on the local populace to do the rest. So, um, from what I understand, too, from what I understand, too, that there are no, like, strings attached like the United States has dealing with, like, for instance, women's rights or, like, you know, basically politically correct um, stuff. Like, the Chinese just go in with a raw economic deal while the United States hinges it on, you know, uh, moral failings or something like that. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, again, I, I, I still to this day don't even understand, you know, we would have to go on a whole other podcast about why we push this degeneracy and spread of this Western democracy um, with, all the, uh, with all the extra garbage that comes with it, you know, gay trans rights sodomy, all these things, women's rights, uh, all these things that are basically going to underpin and undermine and subvert that culture that you're trying to, you know, of that nation that you're trying to partner with. Um, 
Whereas, yeah, China isn't doing that. So really, when it comes to the U.S. and China, a lot of countries uh, right now in, in the world, I would say that they are looking at, uh, at U.S. and China, and, you know, if you're, let's say you're uh, a third-rate nation, uh, you know, a, small, uh, a, a you're a nation of the third world, right? When you look at the U.S., you know, there's a little bit more trust there simply because it's the devil you know. I know what the U.S. does. They, I know what their modus operandi is. I know what they're going to, you know, I know what they do. I know what they're about. I'm familiar, you know, I'm more from the world, the global economy is more familiar with how the U.S. conducts business because that's, you know, that's been us this whole, you know, over, over 80 years now, essentially. It's been us, right? And then I would say almost uh, 40 years or more of that was solely us, meaning not even a close competitor at all. And so a lot of people, it's kind of like the devil I know, right? Whereas China is the new devil on the block. I don't know how they're going to behave. I don't have a long-term, long-term, you know, record that I can access and be like, this is how they're going to respond in this situation. So China is the new kid on the block. They're not very proven. They don't have a pro- you know, they don't have a record backing them, right? So a lot, a lot of third world countries or other countries, they're kind of on the fence, right? They might be on the fence. They might be like, you know, I don't like that U.S. pushes this garbage on me and comes with all these strings attached. But I don't know how the Chinese are going to deal. I don't have a lot of trust there. I don't know what that long-term relationship is going to look like. Not only that, do I really know if they're going to be able to pull it off. The military is unproven, right? That's probably a big factor, right? So not sure how it's going to play out. I mean, it, it seems like um, my idea, and this is totally uh, my, you know, I'm not, you know, this is just a thought that I had. This isn't something that Zion had said. Um, but kind of going to your comment at the beginning of the, you know, at the introduction about how it seems like that China is um, stepping up a lot stronger to aid Russia, not just economically, but maybe even militarily. I think what's happening is um, possibly, I'm not sure, this may be coming totally out of left field, but... I think one way is trying to, you know, they have an unproven military. They might sell themselves and say, yeah, you know, our military is unproven, but, you know, we have Russia uh, military ally as well, and we have agreements with them, and we, you can access their security forces, and they can have a contingent of forces at your, at your country if you think that is better. You know, they're our buddies. And, and, and so part of me thinks that, a lot of people are seeing China, at, like we're looking at China and we're just looking at them alone, when it's really not them alone. You know, Russia and China are, sometimes it feels like they are working in tandem. And where, you know, Russia provides, you know, the high-end uh, military technology as well as military, you know, much more trained military forces and the raw energy and uh, from their oil reserves uh, raw mineral reserves, and then of course their food, and then China provides the finances, money, um, other technology suites like AI suites, and then of course you know this massive labor pool that you know it's going to shrink over time, but they still have it for now, right? So they still have a lot of production capacity, and then of course you know over time a consumer-led nation that will leverage their finance, um, their financial ability and purchasing ability even higher, which would become more attractive to the third world. So it's more of like Russia and China are kind of like 
moving together, so to speak. And if China really, you know, the rumors of them possibly stepping up and offering military aid, weapons, and stuff like that for Russia in the Ukraine conflict, that's going to be a big signal that maybe what I'm saying is true, that their approach is going to be like, hey, we're not, not only are, are we stable and we offer these things as a standalone nation of China, but, you know, our big partner, Russia, has our back. And that's military, that's oil. So that's even more stability and security. Whereas, whereas, whereas what about U.S., right? So this is why, you know, the U.S. is kind of like a, you know, even though these are the new kids on the block, the, this is the, this is the, you know, this is the moment in history right now where are we going to step up to the plate and the Western uh, forces, particularly the Atlantic uh, forces, step up to the plate and kind of show that we still got it? Or is this where we, you know, we see uh, a fall in the West, right? Um, because, like I said, even with Russia kind of, you know, this Russia-China combination, they're still kind of like the new kid on the block. It's still unproven. Although I would say, you know, based on our previous podcast, Russia is certainly proving their military capability right now. Um, you know, they're showing that they can handle uh, asymmetric forces, you know, with what they accomplished in Syria. Okay, that was kind of like stage one, advertising to the world, oh, yeah, we can handle an asymmetric war or insurgent forces just like the U.S. Uh, can. And that's what they basically accomplished in Syria. And now they're showing on the world stage, oh, and by the way, we can also handle near-peer conventional forces, which, which to be honest with you, we didn't even accomplish that. You know, we always fought forces that were significantly weaker than us, right? Right. And I would like to just comment on that. So, like, a lot of people don't understand that um, barring Desert Storm, there haven't been large-scale operations against a near-peer adversary in the world since basically World War II. Obviously, some people would point to uh, the Israeli wars against the Arabs, but again, that's also... The Arabs, for whatever reason, are very incompetent at war, so really doesn't have the same kind of connotations as far as um, military operations. But it is important to go back and talk about this, because here's the thing, is people are like, alright, Russia is not getting that three-day victory like they were supposed to have said, which is not true at all. But obviously, they're, they're running into trouble. Why? It's because they're right against the entirety of uh, NATO. And if they're still able to gain ground, as they are right now, that means that a, NATO is arrayed against an enemy, a near-peer adversary that is capable. And it's been standing on its own two feet, you know, uh, economically and militarily as well, um, with only sourcing uh, munitions from North Korea only recently. And I guess now they're talking to the PRC. But you have to remember that Russia has the economy the size of Italy, right? And so what does that mean necessarily for us? It means that we vastly underestimated Russia and we vastly under trained NATO countries so I mean I have personally experienced it with like liaisoning to those countries in a way and I would say that like uh, apart from the French military NATO is not a capable military force in fact uh, it's basically just a collection uh, collective security group which falls under the American umbrella of protection um, so for instance you take uh, the Libyan intervention 
Um, they said it was a multi-level co NATO coalition, but everything was provided for uh, to NATO by the by the United States. Uh, whether it's the carrier strike group, whether it's the logistical end of things, whether it's uh, the munitions themselves or the smart um, integration, which you put onto dumb bombs, we're the ones that were providing that. Roughly speaking, the Europeans don't have that. And so now the Europeans are in an oh shit moment, right? And then they're getting all their stuff ground down in Ukraine. And people are like, well, why are we doing that when China is already threatening Taiwan and we might have to conserve our, our munitions, our hardware, um, instead of sending it to Ukraine to help defend Taiwan, which is a far more important and strategic economic asset than Ukraine ever was. But you go ahead and comment. Yeah, so before I, I comment on, I'll just make a quick comment on what, uh, what you're saying here. It, it absolutely agree with what you're saying. Um, this, is, this is really the moment, okay? I mean, we, I, think, I think forces in Europe kind of already saw this, and I believe France's m military power and then Germany's technological power, right? I think they wanted to join forces uh, and be kind of like and reconstitute your, your the eurozone, right? But uh, maybe relations between France and Germany kind of soured, and then that's when Russia, as you know, was very much trying to join into the eurozone, and they were convincing the Germans, because they're like, hey, Germany, with your high technology, you know, we purchase your rocket technology, we purchase a lot of your technology that aids our military technology, and you rely on all of our gas and oil through all these pipelines, why don't, why don't, why don't you let us join the eurozone? And Germany, I believe, was entertaining that idea, and, but whatever, I think we put pressure on and, and, and basically severed that and also put pressure on France, you know, because maybe France was on the fence. Maybe they're like, well, we want to be the guys that leave the Eurozone, not us and Russia, right? So the Eurozone is kind of fractured, but then this conflict is really showing that their instincts were correct, that, hey, you know, the U.S. isn't, maybe isn't that guy anymore. And we're certainly way behind on everything. You know, that's kind. Of, it's like a massive wake-up call to, and solidifying maybe a lot of the intuition and thinking that was going on in the European in the eurozone, right? And then, and of course, you know, again, Russia standalone fighting a, a massive conventional war against a near peer adversaries, and then of course against all of NATO, and 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 at least on the logistical standpoint, economic standpoint. And they're able to hold their own. They're only just now getting allies coming in. And, and in my opinion, that would be leveling the playing field. You know, if China gave more support to Russia via weapons and stuff like that, that essentially would be leveling the playing field because that's what we've been doing with Ukraine's forces, right? So it would actually be technically an even fight, which, of course, our propaganda isn't going to say that, right? Um, and that's one front. Right? If China, as you say, as you correctly say, if they attack Taiwan, and now we have an, we have another front here, okay, that means we have to now have our logistics are now going to be split between two very weak 
forces, NATO is weak without us. Obviously, the Asian countries. I mean, Japan's pretty pretty strong. So we'll have to see what Japan, how hard Japan would step up to the plate, because their、uh, navy forces, I think, the third largest in the world. They're actually pretty significant. But let's just say you know you have two fronts, and both of your allies are kind of weak, meaning you're doing eighty percent of the lifting on both fronts. Whereas with Russia and China. Russia's doing eighty percent of the lifting on the Ukraine side, so they they only need like let's say twenty percent help from their allied forces, and then China would be doing eighty percent of the lifting on the eastern front, with or、uh, with maybe only twenty percent help from other allies. So do you see what I'm saying? It's already kind of like if this global con- if this conflict in Ukraine does erupt into World War Three,、um, we're really going to be. I mean, we're really going to be put on on the pressure here, and I, I'm not sure what that outcome would look like.、Um, there's pro, there's obviously、uh, you know that's a whole another discussion. So, kind of getting so, back to yeah, go ahead. So,、um, actually, I, I mean, from my experience, you know, just talking to、um, you know when I was in the military and stuff, and it, the fixation even back all the way down to 2010, 2009. Was that China was on the rise and it was a, a significant and critical threat, and now it's gone to the point where it's it shifted from interdicting Chinese capability from advancing technologically or logistically, politically, etc., to all the way to okay, the coming war is coming now, like soon, like maybe next year, maybe like that's like for like for real, and on top of that.、Um, We have the added issue of okay, we're not going to win this outright. What we can do is maybe incur a pyrrhic victory on the Chinese. That's a significant difference in rhetoric, as opposed to what it used to be, which is, you know, oh, we're gonna we're gonna smash them, no problem. They have this weird, you know, outdated force like the Russians. The Russians are totally, you know, un- you know, unprepared. But now the the circumstances have so completely changed in the favor of the CSTO, which is what their their alliance is called,、um, and especially with the addition of Iran into this conflict,、uh, which will put significant tensions on OPEC nations and our capability of getting sustainable and cheap oil to provide for not just logistically for our our people and. Consumer goods and economy, which we, by the way, we're going into a severe recession right now, but also the ability to provide for our militaries that petrol that we need, especially because our tank wars. People don't know this, but、um, the reason why the Russians use the T-72s as opposed to their more modern T-14 or T-90 Armadas is because diesel engines are far more. Uh, Cost-effective and gas-efficient than their gas turbine engines of the later models, and our entire tank fleet of Abrams runs on gas turbine engines, which are gas guzzlers, and so that's a significant strategic like、uh, calculus that we have to think about because both Iran and Russia are huge producers of oil, and that's something that. The Chinese only need, which they won't face the same predicament as the Japanese in World War II, who had no exposure to oil. Now we have a menace the size of a gargantuan titan. Now with unlimited supply of oil for their military forces. But you go ahead. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, again, significant challenges. And let's kind of go back to, we'll circle back on that, but let's go back to um, demographic situation. So, as I said, that's kind of the model that they're moving towards is they're going to be consumer-led. They need to convince the third world that dealing with China is easier deal, dealing and fair dealing than dealing with the West. And that our military power is just as better, good or even better, especially if, if they prove so in the coming military conflict directly with the West, if not already. And um, other aspects here is, you know, that population, if, if, if I'm a consumer-led here and a consumer-led there, at the end of the day, a lot of firms, you know, yes, all the perks, that and the purchasing power by converting my currency when I when these exchanges of my goods to your market take place, that's an important factor. But another important factor is just volume. So if their populace decreases to six hundred million or whatever, it's still way it's double what we are now and would still be over two hundred million more than what the US happens. So if you're producing low quality manufactured goods, you're still gonna go with volume. You're still gonna go with you may still go with who can who has the greater volume uh, in the mar- in the market, right? Um, and then, of course, Zion says that oh, they're going to have a fa- a famine, and all of them are going to die, you know, if we put the sanctions on them that we did on Russia. Um, I absolutely agree that you know when this if, a, if this conflict occurs and we put sanctions on China, uh, it's going to very very harm them. You know, I mentioned earlier that they've built a lot of agreements with a lot of nations. Obviously, Iran and Russia are very strong agreements, Korea, North Korea, but um, the Belt and Road Initiative is not as successful as they have would have liked it to have been. Um, and that's not even accounting the interference that we made in Central Asia and things like that. Um, so, th- you know, their economy still dramatically and overwhelmingly is based on uh, trade relations with us, the U.S. So there, it's going to hurt them significantly. And that makes me wonder maybe that was the purpose behind the lockdowns and why they did them for so long with COVID. You know, I'm kind of suspicious about COVID in general, and I kind of look at the lockdowns as maybe this was their way of seeing how long they can keep their populace in line. You know, they wanted to see what the breaking point was. And it was, what, over two years Right, that their populace just followed orders and stayed inside and didn't consume much, right? Which probably led a surplus in in their supply chain because nobody was consuming anything, right? So it was almost like war preparation, if you think about it. Um, and uh, what was going with that? So when they get hit with those sanctions, they kind of have an idea of how the populace will react whether they're going to be able to, you know, whether things are going to get so bad that they're going to have huge domestic issues, right? And I'm not saying a famine would happen. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. These these kinds of extreme things can happen with China. There is a, a record, a historical record behind that. But I don't know. I think things are different now. And I, you know, you'd be surprised how quickly a populace can get behind their government when there's a clear enemy. That, oh, we're getting sanctioned by the U.S., that's why our economy is going to crap, 
and now we're in a now we're involved in a direct war with the U.S. Okay, well, you know, the populace like just gets in line, right? Whereas our country, you know, we haven't even been in a global conflict since World War II, and you know, this conflict is certainly going to be more intense, I would say, than that one, uh, or just as intense. And I'm I'm not totally sure it, how how uh, the United States is going to react as a populace. You know, we, we're very divided. So, you know, it's going to be very interesting. But he is correct, Zihan, that sanctions would very much harm them. And I love how, when he talks about that, he essentially says, uh, you know, the policies that um, Trump put in place, these new trade agreements, you know, and basically t- telling technological firms that, hey, if you want to keep doing business in China, like, you're going to face problems with, you know, we're not going to allow that anymore. So you need to move your highest, your your highest grade technological assets, including per, especially personnel, out of China. And you need to move them back to the United States. And it's funny how, you know, Trump got criticized constantly, berated constantly, you know, and then he puts this nationalist policy in that's basically anti-China. And Biden is now solidifying it, expanding it, crossing all uh, all the T's and dotting all the I's. And it's just funny how, like, you know, Zihan takes all these stabs at the right wing, yet here he is acknowledging, you know, the, and he, that even the Biden regime is acknowledging that this trade policy was the correct policy, right? That a nationalist policy, you know, so we're going to see more nationalism no matter what here in the United States because that's the only way you can respond to what they're doing, Right. The global order and the global system is collapsing as we speak. And that system was 100% U.S. hegemony, right? Um, so I just wanted to mention that. And, you know, let's see. I'm kind of lost in thought here. Um, no, but I would actually like to add something here, if you don't mind. Um, yes, go so, ahead. So, you know, I, I was... Uh, just hearing about this, I was reading the Bloomberg, the Bloomberg freaking <laughs> newspaper, and it talked about almost instead of being in denial. Remember that at first they said it was a, a pipe dream, right? With Brexit, that you know, great power politics like globalism was inevitable. Remember that it was inevitable. Yeah. You can't get around it. And then it started being well. Now nationalists are threatening it, maybe, and then it became. We must fortify democracy and globalism. And then to today, I remember reading an article, and especially in The Economist as well, that globalism is over. That era is over. The 1990s wow. is over. And so it's really, they, obviously, they're the enemy. They don't want to admit defeat. But it's important for our viewership to understand that what you do in this life matters, and it has an effect, and we were able to take a significant threat at least down a peg you know what i mean and i mean i don't know if you know this but i read that in the economist i was i was surprised and the economist is a huge shill for uh, globalism oh yeah oh yeah that's that's a huge i would call that a, a flare uh, a signal flare um usually the economist is kind of sometimes they throw ideas out there from the technological elite of the west um and the, especially the money powers and the banks. So, and sometimes they're sending a signal flare of being like, hey, just so you guys know, like, time's up on 
on different issues. So I, I did not know that. That's 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 I would say that's significant. Um, and I don't think so. You know, kind of going back to you know, if we sanction them, these different trade policies that we're rapidly putting into place, it's trying to dive off and brain drain. Well, economically drain, but also brain drain, particularly and technologically drain China, right? Because obviously, in if if they're going to become a major world power or the world power, technology is going to be um, you got to be on the forefront of that. You got to be the pioneer of that. And then, of course, in technological warfare, um, you need to have that edge, right? And clearly, you know. They they're definitely gain, they definitely have an edge. I would say in three categories already. You know they're definitely kind of leading an edge in, uh, or at least catching up to our edge in AI technology. You know, and if you think about it, they've employed AI technologies on a wider scale than Western powers. You know, with their whole social credit system that they have there, that nightmare system that I'm sure our our technological elite here would love to have. Okay, so don't don't get mixed up about it at all. You know, our technological elite would love. In fact, I, I feel like they're jealous of what China has accomplished. And I'm pretty sure uh, what's that guy Charles Schwab from the World Economic Forum. He even said as much when he did an interview with uh, a Chinese news agency recently, where he said, "Oh, I, I find so many great things about China." And you know, he he almost he was smirking and so giddy. I, I was surprised he didn't just slip up and say, we want to be just like you, you know? Like, it's just ridiculous. So um, keep that in mind that, you know, the the, elite, the oligarchy here in the West um, is more of a rivalry. They all agree on what they on, that they want to accomplish the exact same thing. This is just a rivalry, and we're caught in the middle. So just think about that. Um, so when talking about this brain drain, the technological drain, I just kind of want to put a little bit more detail there because... People need to understand, so let's, let's, you know, when it comes to technology, I mentioned the AI, another two key places would be uh, military technologies, such as hypersonic missiles uh, and drones, okay? Uh, we're definitely the leader in drones, but I would say China has put lots of emphasis into drones and are catching up, if not surpassing. Um, and then, of course, hypersonic missiles, we're behind them uh, and Russia, but... Let's just talk about, you know, this. So military technology, you know, you can easily argue is, you know, when you want to take a, when you want to measure a country's technological output and, and ability is, you know, looking and emphasizing their military technology because obviously military technology and all the R&D that goes behind it usually trickles out into your uh, commercial forces and, you know, becomes commercial uh, available technology, right? Uh, you know, civilian so when you look at that, a lot of people tend to boil down, well, we've been the leader in military technology. We spend the most money on military technology. Uh, there's no way China is catching up, blah, 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 blah. You see this a lot, and it's because the average person doesn't really understand how military spending works. And they also don't understand how, how you the proper way to compare spending in one country versus another, right? You know, how do you compare... Russian military spending, when, as you said earlier, their economy is only the size of Italy, and our economy is the largest in the world, how do you even make that comparison? Well, it's purchasing power parity, right? What that essentially means is, is on if we were having equal footing, 
if that purchasing power was equal footing, how many units of labor, how many units of, of hardware am I getting per spend, right, per dollar spent, right? Essentially what purchasing power parity is doing, you know, it's, it's helping us trying to compare apples to apples as opposed to world's largest economy to economy only size Italy, right? And what happens when, that, when you equate for that purchasing power, that's when you really see what's their results. So, for example, Russia, they just don't have the production capacity. And that's why, you know, take, for example, their Su-57, Su which is, you know, their most advanced uh, fighter jet, right? They're only able to make such small, limited quantities. And then by the time they even get a few of those quantities or squadrons produced, they're already on to them. They already have to be pushed to the next project or the next gen uh, to keep up with the, re the, the rest of the world, uh, even by the time they roll out that, that unit, right? So when you look at Russia, it's like, okay, they have a lot of the other uh, pieces of the equation accounted for, you know, the energy input, the R&D input, but they're just really hindered on capacity production capacity because they just have a shorter they already have they already had their demographic collapse right uh for the most part so you know they have a, they have a production capacity problem whereas we have a greater production capacity so we trump them right even if we had if even if we spent the same amount of dollars right well when you look at china okay that purchasing power parity and what they're getting out of it starts to have them catch up significantly to where we where we spend. I think we spend like what eight hundred uh, billion dollars or something like that. Well, uh, or maybe seven hundred billion. And you know, on paper, China looks like it's only spending like five, six, or something like that. It's much higher. It's much closer when you start factoring in this purchasing power parity. And how to how to make sense of that real quick is you know I mentioned the Su fifty seven that's the highest grade fighter jet that would be like building a F thirty five or an F twenty two in the United States and that we've built hundreds of F thirty fives you know many many squadrons whereas they've only been able to build maybe a handful of squadrons right well in China their equivalent would be the J twenty right fighter aircraft and they're building it close to the production capacities that we have for our F-35. So what I'm trying to say here is, remember I mentioned earlier that they're already the world's leader in shipping tonnage, and their Navy has just exploded. The amount of submarines they have, the amount of cruisers, battle cruisers they have, is just accelerating. Usually people, they only concentrate on the aircraft carrier, but they don't really understand that, you know, the aircraft carrier isn't necessary uh if, if I were to engage the United States right now on the oceans, I wouldn't necessarily need an aircraft carrier or dozens of them. I would need more drones. I would need lots of cruisers that can engage you with ship-to-ship -ship missiles from long distances. Um, and then I can have my J-20 fleet launch from different islands or bases. And the J-20 is designed and oriented for long-range engagements, including their missiles, right? For example, you know, they have the PL... I think it's called the PL-15 uh, missile, and that's a that's a much longer-range missile than what we can produce right now with the AIM-9X, and, and even right now I think we're trying to produce something called the AIM-60X uh, or something like that where we're trying to catch up to that missile technology that China has in long range. So 
you can't look at China and be like, oh, they only have one aircraft carrier. We have, you know, dozens. So that's not how you want to measure it. You want to measure it in the total tonnage of their fleet, submarines, cruisers, all, all the other craft. And they are huge, man. And they've just been building and building nonstop. They just keep building, okay? And if we, in modern conflict, as we see in Ukraine, and I'm sure the same would be true in a naval conflict, is essentially it's going to be attrition, right? So if I take out, like, dozens of your fleet aircraft and you can't reproduce and that tonnage and reproduce it and, and recruit those losses, whereas China can just spit these things out, you know, that says a lot, right? So to kind of put this in perspective, the position that the U.S. and China are in right now, when we look at military spending, we are basically Germany of World War II, and China is the U.S. of World War II. And what I mean by that is the majority of our spending is spent on high-paid, you know, salaries, wages, and benefits of our military, our professional military force, and all the grifting that goes along with it at the DOD, right? And then the next phase of that is we blow a lot of uh, money on maintenance on all this old equipment that we have, okay? And just keeping that equipment going. And like you said, mentioned er like you mentioned earlier, a lot of our equipment is based on the old global order. So, for example, our M1 Abrams are extremely expensive logistically because they use gas and not diesel, right? That's a, that's a, a micro example, right, of what I'm talking about here. And then when it does come to new technologies, we have all this bloat and we blow all these te technologies or, or monies on these wonder, we you know, wonder weapons, just like Germany did. And yeah, these wonder weapons are going to be, you know, really advanced, really high, like really good. But like, if you can't produce them in mass, right? You know, you have this crazy German tank that's super strong, powerful. It's it's superior to all the other tanks. But I've got, I'm overwhelming your your tank uh, battalion with like twice the size with all these little Shermans flying around. It don't matter how good the tank is; it's going to get overwhelmed. Exactly. And just to add to the and, point, just a technical yeah. point, uh, you know, the, the thing that people don't understand is that uh, to calculate, so to speak, military force, mass is your base value. The technology and uh, munitions and all that kind of stuff, that's a force multiplier. That is not the base of what, like, military power is. You need mass. Mass is the the origin, and that's what they have in spades. And just to add another point before you continue, yeah, they have one aircraft carrier, but that's not their strategy. They don't. They don't need multiple aircraft carriers. They don't need like a global, you know, uh, navy. What they need is a strong Greenwater Navy that can project their power off their shores, keep America off, you know, from invading their their mainland. And more importantly, project their power along a trade route that's hugged closely to the coast. That's all that matters, and that's why they're focused on that. But go ahead. Yeah, and and so what you have is you have a military force that has gloat or bloat in, when it comes to spending and management in in headcount. You have bloat in maintenance costs, and then you're sitting here chasing down chasing these red herons and these prop and these. Uh, these wonder weapons and not having that production capacity and not having that volume, which is going to mat which, as you said, matters the most. 
China, exactly the opposite. They don't have a bloat in their pay because they don't pay these guys well. They don't have bloat in maintenance costs because their military is pretty much brand new. It's like some of these crap are like less than a couple years old. So they don't have any bloat in maintenance. They did have bloat in the beginning in uh, upgrading in the sense that the Chinese populace, now that they've been able to actually like eat full meals three times a day, they've gotten big. They've gotten like tall. So some of them don't even fit in the uniforms. Some of them don't even fit in the armored, uh, you know, their, their armored uh, vehicles. So they had to initially spend a lot of money just getting these things so people can fit in them and use them, which is ridiculous, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, but that's done now. So they don't have bloat in pay and headcount. They don't have bloat in maintenance. So where's all their money going to? All their money is going to sheer capacity of numbers, production, and then it's going into new technologies, R&D. So, so remember, if I'm the U.S. and I'm trying to keep a technological edge but all my money already most of my money got absorbed into just paying people and maintenance costs okay and all these bases we have all over the world um i have a small amount of money now going towards to keep keep that technological edge going if you're trying to and you have a huge surplus of money to dump into r&d you're going to catch up very quickly Okay, and I think they have. Now, I think they're still lacking in key technologies, uh, like rocket engines, for example. Um, and I still think their military is very much unproven. It, it's, it's we're going to see how... It's turbine engines. Yeah. They're, they're actually very advanced in, in rocket solid fuel engines. So, sorry, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. Okay. Um, but again, this is very similar to... Germany of World War II and U.S. of World War II. Our military was kind of pretty much unproven. We were lacking in, in a lot of equipment and, and technologies, but we just absorbed those casualties. We just absorbed uh, all of that. It just was just a, we were just a juggernaut that couldn't be stopped, right? And of course, you know, I mean, me and you know more detail about World War II and that we weren't facing the strongest of German forces. The most the strongest German units were deployed on the Eastern Front. But still, right? We're, if a conflict were to happen today, U.S. is the Germany of World War II and China is the U.S. of World War II. And we saw what happened. We saw how that went down. So I, I feel right now, how would it play any differently? You know, in high, you know, there's a phrase, uh, there's a saying in, in um, military thought, is, and that is, in World War III, you know, high technological conventional warfare, the first casualty of high technology is high technology. Meaning, you know, I have a J-20 aircraft that flies up, shoots missiles from long, you know, beyond visual range, all that stealthily. It hits a whole bunch of my units because I couldn't, I couldn't detect them, couldn't intercept in time. I have an F-35 that goes, flies out there, doesn't get detected, shoots a bunch of missiles, hits a bunch of Chinese targets, that they couldn't detect, they couldn't intercept, right? So I took losses, they took losses, right? They kind of counter each other, right? So at that point, it's it's going to come down to, as you said, these attrition, the attrition rates, right? And remember, if I do detect that F-35 and shoot it down, how hard is it for me to reproduce it and replace it versus if I detected that J-20 and shot it down, how quickly they're going to be able to reproduce it and put, it, put a new one back up in, in the sky, including a pilot. So... 
you know, the, I don't think people really understand uh, a technological edge, as you said, is not the key point. And when you get down to these details that I just uh, talked about, they're actually way closer than we thought. So it's not like, oh, te high technology isn't the key, but uh, China is so far behind that, they're, no, they're not far behind, they're right next door. They're right on p par with a lot of our technologies. Okay, particular drones, hypersonic missiles, um, especially uh, land uh, to ship uh, missiles, um, surface missiles, um, they've had that game locked down for a long time, right? Because they have missile batteries scattered across their entire large coast, and that would just flood the wars, uh, the battle space with these uh, long-range missiles, right? So, kind of going on, you know, to just kind of giving a, you know, there. Another thing he said was like, they don't have enough young people to go consumer-led. I don't think that matters as much, you know. Chinese culture is very different. Um, the elderly work. You know, our elderly, by the way, have continued to work, but I would argue that, you know, the elderly in China have probably worked lo longer and more, more into their el elderly years than the elderly here, right? So the idea that they can't go consumer-led, I don't, again, I don't really agree with what he says that. I think he says it at, like, the 30-minute mark. Um, I think they can easily go consumer-led, Okay. You know, you have countries that went consumer-led with a fraction of the size of the population that China has. So this idea that they're going to have this demographic collapse, and just from that sheer demographic collapse, they can't go consumer-led, that's ridiculous. And as we talked about many times, on, uh, you know, you can easily rebound your birth rates very quickly, which look what happened at the end of World War II. We had a massive baby boom. Why? Because we were the victors. We won. We were now the global hegemony. So if China and Russia take this gambit, and win, they're going to have massive baby booms, right? And then, you know, so this whole idea, you know, one moment Zihan could be saying, oh, yeah, you know, in 10 years they're basically going to be gone. I mean, I think he even said that at one point. Yeah, I think he even said, like, oh, yeah, in 10 years they're, like, they're not going to be around. You know, and he said that about Russia, too. Like, oh, they only have, like, 10, 15 years left or something like that. Just ridiculous comments, right? When, how much you want to bet, you know, they won. Next, you know, he'll be doing a podcast or a YouTube video where he's like, oh, my God, their birth rates are going to be huge. They're going to have double the size. Like, it can be reversed very quickly, um, you know, within a generation, basically. Um, you know, we've talked about how, you know, I've already, I, I want to emphasize to, uh, in this podcast that when you look at China and you look at how they're progressing, they're really following the playbook of the United States, I always feel like history is repeating. It's just you're re-swapping Germany out and the access powers for the United States and the handful of Atlantic powers that we have, uh, uh, you know, like Britain and, and um, like the UK and France versus Russia and China, right? Which, you know, would be Russia and the U.S. of, of uh, the Allied forces in World War II. And I just feel like history is repeating. It's just, you know, when you get into these details, you know, what did China do? They, they, you know, in the 1980s, they opened up their economy and they went to being the greatest uh, manufacturer base of the world. That's what we were in the 1930s and into the 1940s. Okay, we were the world's largest manufacturing base. Okay, and you had cheap labor where every, we were producing everybody's goods. Okay, 
and then they they made their money from that, and then they started to train. They're slowly transitioning. You know, they took that money and spent it on building up their military, building up more trade agreements with people, uh, furthering their alliance with Russia, and then they you know they're moving. They now know that you know they got to move into consumer led. In order to do that, you're going to have to be able to convince people that your dollar is better option than the U.S. dollar. Well, what better way to prove that to people than by challenging the U.S. directly? And it's going to be that involves military. So, I, I wanted to ask you, you know a question. Like, yeah, I wanted to ask you a question. So, um, from what I understand, you're very knowledgeable about currencies and current market spending. Could you explain to us what exactly currencies are hinged on and why the yen might be superior to the dollar? Well, right now, okay, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So this goes back to uh, Bretton Woods' agreements of, of the end of World War II. So at the end of World War II, um, the Allied forces you know, basically got together and decided how they were going to chop up the world, right, how they are going to divide the world up amongst the Allied powers, particularly the U.S., Britain, and uh, Russia. And of course, Stalin is when, you know, and they initially wanted a, uh, they kind of were pushing for a global government, kind of. And they wanted that, you know, the UN was created. Um, different uh, organizations were created for starting to, put, you know, push this world into a global economy. Stalin wasn't cooperating. Uh, and that's what kind of led the led us into the Cold War because he kind of wanted to do his own thing and he didn't want to cooperate with what the banking elite and technological elite of the West wanted to do. So they just kind of divided the world and went forward. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm just skipping over that for now. And so eventually the global system at that time, uh, you had the U.S. dollar was the world reserve currency. And so what that means is how can I, it, it, you know, I, I remember I, I showed you a long time ago, I drew like a diagram. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain this architecture without like a diagram to look at, without an illustration, because it's just going to sound very confusing. But what I'm going to try and illustrate here is this. You have the world hegemony power, the U.S. You have a sort of adjacent organization, what's called at the U.N. World Bank, IMF, um, the IMF stands for International Monetary Fund. So you have the, the U.S. and these adjacent organizations. They want to facilitate a world, a global, a global uh, trade, right, globalism. What you do is you divide the, the world into two pieces. You have the third world where they only provide very cheap raw materials. That would be energy, oil, and that would be, you know, all your other raw goods, okay? Metals, all that stuff, okay? The other half of the world is they take that raw material, cheap energy, cheap uh, raw raw material inputs, and they, they output really quality, uh, you know, low quality to mid-tier quality to high quality goods, okay? So, for example... We had two direct allies at the at, right at the end, 
you know, right at the immediate end of uh, World War II, or essentially two countries that we conquered. I mean, let's just be frank. And that was Germany and Japan. Well, in order to get Germany and Japan that were completely decimated and destroyed and bombed into oblivion, how do you get them from that to a sprawling, you know, pow- you know, powerful or you know, healthy economy and country? Well, what they did was they essentially took raw material from the third world, you bring it in to the second world, right? Who then take that raw material and they make those manufactured goods, and then they dump that manufa- those manufactured goods into the first world or the the one world power which would be the US because we're the consumer now we're consuming it in order to facilitate this relationship you have the US dollar as the reserve currency now the US dollar as a reserve currency it needs to be stronger like valued more than the third world so that when they sell their goods or their raw materials their energy and their raw materials, they're getting U.S. dollars for it. And those U.S. dollars are worth much higher than their local currencies or any of the currencies of the third world so that they can then use those dollars to purchase, uh, again, high technologies. They can purchase uh, those manufactured goods from the second world. They can use those dollars to invest in their economy. Or in most cases, when it comes to the third world, It'll just, you know, line the pockets of some dictator, line the pockets of, you know, some faction and their cronies, right? Let's just be real, right? The second world, what they do is their currency, their local currencies have to be higher or more valuable than the U.S. reserve currency. Because if it's lower than the U.S. reserve currency, then it's too costly for them to offload those manufactured goods into the U.S. market, right? So it needs to be valued higher than the U.S. currency, okay? Not too much higher, but higher. Because what they're doing is they're taking their currency, which is valued higher, exchanging it for U.S. dollars, and then using those U.S. dollars to purchase those cheap energy and raw materials into their country to make their manufactured goods and then offshore it back to U.S. and make that money back again. So that's kind of the relationship that's been going on for almost 80 years. There was a hiccup, okay? There was a hiccup in the 70s. That hiccup was basically a faction of third world nations that that were major oil producers got together formed a cartel known as OPEC, okay, that was led by Saudi Arabia, and said, hey, you, we're not just going to be, you know, our oil isn't just going to be taken without any additional perks, right? Um, so they showed us that they had, that, that, that their cartel had enough power to do damage to the U.S. economy, and in retrospect, our allies in the second world, uh, and in, you know, particularly Europe, Japan, um, and we had the oil crisis of the 1970s. And how did we resolve that crisis? We basically said, okay, all oil that, is, that the OPEC sells has to be done, you know, we had to get off the gold standard to facilitate this. We kind of already were, but it was truly the last sort of pegs to the, the U.S. reserve currency to gold was severed in the 1970s during this crisis 
And that was done in order to create the volume uh, in dollars needed to facilitate the new agreement, which was basically all oil needs to be sold, especially from OPEC nations, needs to be sold in U.S. dollars, okay? And in exchange, the agreement we made to Saudi Arabia, since they were the guys that were pretty much leading this cartel, was that we would have U.S. bases in their country, and we're going to provide total security from their adversaries or rivals, particularly Iran, Iraq, you know, other other Middle East nations that don't like Saudi Arabia or there's, you know, historic beef between the two um, and definitely, you know, cultural religious issues, you know, Shiite versus Sunni. Um, and, you know, there's a lot more to unpack in that story, but that happened in the 1970s, right? which created even greater purchasing power or leverage that the U.S. currency had, and it created the volume needed for the actual financial system for dollars to circulate because there was no more, gold was no more kind of like limiting, limiting that. Um, and it also forced a lot of third world nations that aren't part of OPEC to now, you know, you know, for, you know, a lot of, a lot of countries that did have oil benefited from selling those goods uh, with a direct exchange. Well, now they have to exchange it to U.S. dollars, and you know OPEC now sets price. So this is what happened, right? And over the course of the past eighty years, these are these are major events that happened that continued to facilitate this arrangement. And remember, that arrangement was U.S. is consumer led. We have the second world is, you know not necessarily under us, but they make the goods and then dump them in the U.S. market. That's why you had all these Japanese cars and all these Japanese goods dumped into the U.S. market in the 80s and 90s. And then you had all these European goods dumped into the U.S. market, right? And they benefit from that relationship. Now, in the beginning, our economy was so big and powerful and our population was so robust that in the beginning, domestic firms and corporations were able to absorb that excess manufactured goods being dumped into the market. That we had such good uh, internal economic health that it didn't hinder our firms too much. But over time, you know, we basically had to destroy domestic competition in order to continue to facilitate. Meaning, you had to sacrifice a lot of domestic American corporations and firms. Uh, small guys, you know, the small businesses, the mid-tier businesses, a lot of them had to get wiped out and sacrificed, and that led to more U.S., US uh, less U.S. jobs, right, in order to continue to facilitate this relationship between the second world firms who are producing all these manufactured goods and the third world who are producing, uh, who are producing the raw material and energy. And in the case of China, they stepped in and provided uh, a second input, a major one, which was cheap labor, which also helped leverage the second world, you know, Germany, Japan, and other nations, even better profits, because then they, they use that labor, right? Which, again, further harmed Americans domestically, okay? So that's kind of been the arrangement, right? And uh, it's harder to say it. It's much easier to illustrate it into a kind of like a chart or a diagram. What China would be doing, when, it come, when I say that they are going to go to consumer-led, when they're trying to make the yen more attractive, what they're basically trying to do is they're just trying to replace the U.S. in that model that I just described with them. So if you think about it, 
China would be the consumer-led economy where the, the yen is now the reserve currency, right? And the third world provides the cheap labor and cheap materials and cheap energy that then flows to the second world, right? Which would probably be, <laughs> in this scenario, with China being the world hegemony, it would probably be Europe and it would probably be the U.S. We would become... We would become Japan of the 1980s. We would become, you know, Germany, right? We would become this nation that has a small population that does all these high, mid-grade to high-grade technological goods that then get sold and dumped into uh, Chinese markets and Russian markets, right? And this would be okay with China because, again, their population is decreasing. They're not going to have this juggernaut of a manufacturing base anymore is going to be slowly shut down and they're going to have this sort of, you know, basically China's going to look like the U.S. of the 1990s where you have this robust middle class that's just spending and spending and spending. And if you look at China, you know, you can argue that they can really set this up really well because let's say, uh, you know, let's say this all, let's say this all goes down and they're now the world reserve currency. And they're now the world's consumer-led country, right? They, in order to get Chinese people to spend money and buy stuff, right? Because that's what they, in order to keep this model going, you need to keep your populace constantly consuming, right? Why do you think in America everyone just blows money on dumb shit all the time? Because we've just been brainwashed by corporations and by our government elite to do that, right? Because that's what maintains this globalist model. Well, China, I mean, they would be able to do it even easier because they have a social credit system. They can easily flip a switch and say, hey, you didn't buy enough shit this month. Go spend money. Or you get rewarded, your social credit score goes higher when you consume, when you just go out and buy stuff. And if you understand Chinese culture, okay, these bugmen, they really are bugmen. They just go and they blow money on stuff. They blow money on crap. That's why you see them wearing stupid stuff like Supreme... You know, I mean, I could say this thing about, like, uh, Air Jordans with American consumers, but you get what I'm trying to say here, is that they can probably even make it work even more so than in the United States. See, in the United States, we've had these ups and downs and recessions, and, you know, some people just, you know, they can't afford to keep purchasing things. They can't, they can't keep that juice going, right? So, whereas in China, they might be able to keep it going in a dip, you know, because they have such a top-down management, such a technological... Uh, dystopia over there with their social credit system, right? So I hope I'm making people kind of understand that they're trying to advertise to the third world and to the second world, particularly Europe, and probably the banking elite, probably all these wealthy elites throughout the world who don't see themselves tied to a single nation. You know, they just want to keep making their money and maintain their power. China could just advertise and say, look, we're just swapping in, in the place of, of U.S. Everybody's tired of the U.S. Everybody's tired of dealing with them. You know, we can be just like them. We positioned ourselves to be just like them. They followed our playbook, okay? In, in and out, they followed it, right? And more importantly, they can sell that, hey, you know, unlike the United States where the populace is split, you know, Democrat versus Republican, and you have to exhaust a lot of resources brainwashing them and propaganda, and, you know, I have to line the pockets of a Democrat to get what I want, or I have to line the pockets of a Republican to get what I want. 
uh, in China, there ain't, there ain't no Republican Democrat. It's just the PRC. And you deal with us, and we have a social credit system and a regime that has complete control over our populace. Do you see what I'm saying? To a of course, yeah. Lead, to the technological elite, that's a way more attractive sell. Which is why I mean, I won't be surprised at all if we have a conflict. The conflict is very short. We lose, and then our government just says, "Oh, hey guys, we're we're moving on. The world's you know we're moving on. China's in charge. We're moving on. Shut up." Stop complaining. We're moving on. Uh, everything's going to be fine. You know. You know. Eat the bugs. Work in the la- work in the in manufacturing plant. Whereas now, it's eat the bugs. Sit in your house and watch TV and buy shit. It's going to be eat the bugs and go to work and work fifteen hours and then come home and don't complain about anything. Right. So, you know, we could become. You know, the roles could get reversed where we now are the cheap ass labor, which makes me wonder why we. Maybe that's why we are allowing so many illegal immigrants to come into the country because they're just going to be this workforce, this ant bugman workforce that gets shoved into these manufacturing facilities that used to be in China that then get moved here, right? Now, again, I'm not exactly sure how these things can go. Maybe this conflict doesn't lead to a clear winner. It kind of leads to a new Cold War where we're the Soviet russia of the cold war and china is the u.s of the cold war and everybody allied or choosing to work with china uh benefits more from the financial system and the global system and then anyone who decides to stay with the old guard or the u.s the usa they don't benefit as much but they're not but they're kind of you know they, they're able to do their own thing uh to a certain extent but you know, do you get what I'm saying? Like you know, in the Cold War, yeah. people who uh, people who chose to go with the Soviet Union, they weren't as wealthy, they didn't have as much money, they didn't have as much of the perks in the global system, but they had some security, they had some wealth, and they had some autonomy from the larger powers, right? Well, I'm sure we're, so we're going to see. I could we're see that going going as well. We, we can, we're going to see what happened in the Middle East during the Cold War, which is countries playing one side over the other. You know what I mean? That's what the Third World did. And basically, and to reiterate, the First World is NATO and America-led. Second World was a Cold War terminology for the common term, which are the communist countries. And the Third World was the unaligned faction, which obviously had, became conflated with the idea that the Third World was the least... Uh, you know, economically developed. The second world was medium, and the first one was. But these are also true uh, statements as well. But yeah, and uh, I think I wanted to ask you. I think the most important question that's that's coming up in recent events. So, um, you know, when do you think war would happen with China, and uh, what do you think necessarily would be the outcome, most likely outcome? Obviously, you gave us some some options, but what do you think would most likely happen? And it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, I we need to do a podcast to kind of discuss what the future is going to look like because you know, as much as we are talking, we're, we're, you know, in this podcast and the previous podcast, we're kind of saying things are way are really in favor of Russia and China, right? And when you put all the data on the table, it, it, it does lean a little bit more towards the Russia and China being 
kind of uh, succeeding. But you just don't know. Anything can happen, especially in war. Anything can happen. Who knows? Somehow, maybe the propaganda machine in the United States goes 100% in the, in the other direction, becomes a super right-wing, and blames China for everything. And the next thing you know, all the idiots here in the U.S. just, you know, sign up and go, go to war, and somehow we win. You never know. You never know what could happen. Um, right now, on, on all that on the table, it seems like that wouldn't happen. It seems like China... Uh, and, and Russia would, would win. Now, as far as China, when would that happen? Very hard to say. Uh, because of how devastating the sanctions would be right now, if it was to happen right now or this year or even next year, it would be pretty devastating to China. It would be a pretty big shock to China. I do think the lockdowns was nothing more than a training exercise. You know, with social with the social credit system, all the cameras, they're able to see and, and record in live in real real time everything every what the population was doing who was resisting who wasn't resisting who was dealing with it who wasn't so that gives them an idea of what to prepare for right so to me that tells you that they're very serious about a conflict and i you know i would say maybe 2025 uh there's been a couple of u.s commanders who have kind of had some memos you know internal memos to their uh, forces that they're in command of to say, hey, we need to step up our training. We're going to be doing more uh, fierce training regiments because um, you guys are not upholding the standards that are needed. And reason why is because we're going to be going to war with China in 2025. So I might just float that out there if you were, if you were to really pressure me into giving a time. I think 2025 makes sense. Um, if you look at Russia. Um, you know, they basically. I think China attacking Taiwan will happen either just before U.S. elections in 2024. So that would be you know quarter 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 four of 2024, um, or it's going to happen just after. So Q1, Q2, quarter one, quarter two of 2025, because um, that's what it seems like with Russia that they um, did it just before or, you know, basically the beginning of, of uh, Q1 of um, 2022. Uh, and then we had our elections in, um, you know, at the end of 2022. So it's going to either take place be just before or just after. Um, if I if you were to really pressure me into a time frame. Um, if the time frame gets pushed out beyond 2025, uh, that would show me that China really knows that they can't handle the sanctions and that they need more time for building up their forces. But if they, you know, which which gives us more time to disrupt that, to put uh, doubt that China can actually pull it off, things like that. Um, but I kind of feel, if you had to tell me right now, based on the information I have right now, based on the rhetoric, based on the recent events of them meeting with Russia, stepping up, possibly stepping up and providing weapons, it could be much sooner than a lot of people think, like 2025. Um, as far as them winning, uh, winning that conflict, that is, I mean, that's going to be much harder to say. Uh, the Spratly Islands that they militarized, you know, over the past few years, um, yes, it kind of pushed their defensive battery and their defensive envelope larger and extended it, but 
again, I don't see them lasting more than maybe the first couple of engagements um, when, the, when the war gets kicked off. And who knows, that might make a difference. Um, Taiwan itself, that's a big question mark. I mean, they recently did a survey, and I think like only 45%, 45% of the populace was in favor of China being in charge. And all that 45%, the majority, were young men. So the young men of your nation don't care if China's in charge versus, you know, Taiwan being independent. And that kind of tells you a lot, right? Because in a war, it's your, it's your young men that are going to fight, not your elderly, right? So right. Me, I kind of question whether it's even worth uh, defending them, right? And, you know, with Russia, which is, or China, which is, you know, amphibious assaults are much harder to conduct. They're unproven military. They have the overwhelming forces. So let's say their amphibious assault totally just, like, fails, right? Well, they can just keep throwing bodies at it until it works, right? Whereas Taiwan doesn't have that luxury. Also, they don't have to technically land troops on the island. They can just use a block. They can create a blockade. And at that point, it's basically going to be drones, aircraft, and ships sh chugging missiles at each other. You know, the U.S. possibly with our uh, Japanese allies uh, versus the Chinese. And you're just going to have submarines, drones, aircraft, and battle cruisers just lugging missiles at each other. And it's basically going to come down to who, who, achieved the more, who, who achieved the higher kill rate. And if, they, if you achieve the high kill rate but, and you also have a high production rate to, get to replace those losses, well, then we, we're going to know who wins, right? So, because remember, you know, you can have a drone go in and take out maybe a mission kill. And what I mean by that is you have a battle cruiser, the drone goes in, does enough damage to the sensors on that battle cruiser that it has to uh, withdraw out of the battle space. So it's not destroyed, it's not sunk, but he's no longer in the battle space putting in any work. He has to retreat, get repairs, and all that nonsense. And that can be done with just a drone, like a little drone just flying into, you know, just kamikazing into your uh, sensor suite on your, your cruiser. So, and China has conducted these kinds of uh, drills on U.S. craft. There's been U.S. craft who have been buzzed by drone swarms. And that's, you know, they have ships that are devoted to just drone launches. So I have no idea how it's going to go down. I just know that it, it, it's going to be a slugfest of missiles, maybe an amphibious uh, assault of some kind. Onto the uh, onto Thailand, uh, Taiwan's mainland. Um, if that occurs, I don't know if Taiwan's going to put up as strong of a resistance. The young men there don't want, don't care. They don't, they don't have a fighting spirit. They sit inside playing uh, Starcraft. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I, it's they not like, to play Dota. What What do they have have to look forward to? I think that's the most pertinent thing. I mean, for instance. Why would I go fight for China, like the demographic of the United States that's competent military force? Why would, you know, either white or East Asian men in America fight for this force that, like, hates us? Why, why do I care? Why would I spill my blood? Let, let the LGBTQ, like, people that you, you show so much, let them spill their AIDS blood. Not me. And that's the thing is exactly. that... Exactly. Uh, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's another cultural factor here. 
is that, you know, with all the crap that the United States has done for the past 30 years, and especially since 2010, uh, constant, nonstop, anti-white rhetoric and anti-heterosexual rhetoric, nonstop, in all the media, all my music, my movies, you know, you can't even have escapism in American culture anymore because they've infiltrated all the video games. They've infiltrated all my movies and TV shows. So I can't even escape, have proper escapism and play a video game that just, you know, is enjoying. Like, they've, this has really created a lot, right? And we saw what something like this happened before in the Vietnam era. You put all this subversion out there and a whole bunch of people turned against uh, our original um, policy of containment against communism, particularly China, and everybody turned against uh, the Vietnam War and didn't think it was worth going there and fighting and dying. Even though I would argue that the South Vietnamese aren't aren't were not like the Thai were not like the uh, Taiwanese. They were very much in favor of resisting the Chinese uh, forces and fighting. It's just unfortunately they're their kin in the north were just as determined and just as resilient, maybe even more so. Um, look what the result was. We, we had to pull out, and it was a, a defeat, right? And I think a similar effect is going to uh, take place here. I think a similar effect is going to take place here. However, I, have a, I would say this. If, if China were to launch right now, it would be in their favor because with a Democrat and president, especially one with such low approval ratings as Biden, you're definitely not going to have, and you know, let's say Biden's like, hey, Taiwan's being attacked, we have agreements with them, uh, you know, we, we need it, we need to, and they initiate a draft, they, you know, to get conscripts, right? You're not going to have people show up, right? He, his approval rating is too low, he, he's such a piece of shit, nobody wants to be, no one's going to show up. Okay, even if you were to do that now, to, to fight Russia to fight Russia and Ukraine ain't gonna happen yeah and, and so it, way, it would be in the war support has significantly declined for Ukraine just over one year it's almost like it's an old TV show for us oh yeah oh yeah people yeah oh yeah it's funny all the all the bullshit um, consumerism has like rotted our brains where we can't even hold attention spans or memory of past like a year you know <laughs> it's like we have we just people just move on to the next thing but um I think also a lot of Americans kind of see that, okay, this is this is like a bullshit. You know, I think they're starting to maybe see through the bullshit that like, the you know Ukraine's not going to win and that and all that. But um, another thing I was going to say was uh, if if China were to invade now, it would be at their advantage. However, let's say in twenty twenty four, the propaganda machine here in the United States completely flips right wing and next you know they you see the media being more anti LGBTQ you know anti homosexual and more pro white and you see all these political leaders kind of like flip flop and this energy starts to build in the right wing that oh my gosh finally we have like people who are saying what we want to hear and are doing what we want and they're going to get a Republican president in I guarantee you if there's a Republican president in 2024, 
then we're definitely going to go to war because more people, more idiots, more just normies are going to be in favor of going to war against China or Russia of a Republican and president than a Democrat. Even if that Republican president I, I think runs on a campaign. What's that? I think that's absolutely oh, accurate. That? Right. And that is why I think any of the, if we see the right wing pivot happen uh, by, by uh, definitely by this summer and into the end of 2023 and then definitely in the beginning of 2024, then that's going to, uh, that anyone who sits here and thinks that, okay, these right wing people are true patriots and they're actually pro white and they're actually pro heterosexual and they're actually pro patriots in charge. Yeah, yeah. All that bullshit. Anyone who if you think any of these guys are that, you're a complete idiot. A a country and a political regime doesn't have a shift like that in, in less than a year. Okay, that's not how it actually works. For actual true patriots and actual true people, this is a that's a cultural phenomenon that takes years in progression before you get politics to then reflect that. It doesn't happen in just a freaking year. Okay, so if this happens, if this occurs, it's going to suck up all the all the. Uh, right-wing boomers big time because they're the most brainwashed. They're the ones that really think that we should be bombing. I mean, even my, you know, even uh, people close to my family uh, that are right-wing, they think that we should be, some of them think that we should be giving nukes to, to Ukraine. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous how brainwashed they are. And Zoomers, the youth in this country, are so hollowed out because of the social media and because of how destructive our culture has become, especially since it's been so anti-white male, an aspect of modernity, okay, that that's at play here. I mean, we're, we're in the postmodern era, but for the most part, the modernity is, is still at play. And an aspect of modernity is that you go from a nobody. You go from rags to riches. You go from a nobody to striking rock or striking some breakthrough, and then you become famous, you become wealthy, yada, yada, yada. An example of that is Captain America. Here's this nobody, he's weak, he's pathetic, and then he has a breakthrough where, you know, they do this experiment on him, and he becomes a super soldier, and then he becomes a hero of the war. Well, we have a bunch of disenfranchised white men that are full of anger, full of rage, and I get a Republican president in there to say everything they want to hear and cultivate that energy, right? Cultivate that energy by saying everything they want to hear, win a bunch of elections, and during that campaign, they're like, hey, hey, we're not going to go to war with Russia. We're not going to go to war with China. We're just going to stand firm to them, but we're not going to go to war. We're not trying to start a world war here. They're going to say that. They're going to say that they're for peace and they're for whatever, or peace through strength, meaning you know, not a weak position, but you know, we're going to we're going to negotiate from a place of strength. That way, the energy is cultivated, but they're 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 going to get led right into a war. Is what I'm trying to say. Because you have these hollowed out white young men who don't understand what's going on. They don't really understand the technological elite. They don't understand our enemies are in our own government on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat. They do not have your best interests at at play. And 
I believe that the people in power here in the United States already know that the game is up. And they don't want to be, you know, if the U.S. is shipping from a first world hegemon to a second world nation or maybe even third world nation, that means the elite and the oligarchy need to make sure their power is solidified because what happens in third worlds? Revolutions happen. Uh, strife happens. Elites get killed, right? Look at Arab Spring. Look at these other countries, right? They don't want to be killed. They want to transition into, you know, whoever's going to be the new dog in town, they don't really care. As long as their money's intact, their power's intact here in the country that they control, right? They could see this war as an avenue to get rid of the portion of your populace that's most likely to be a problem in the future. Who would that be? White, straight white men of the founding stock of this country. What better way than to give them what they want briefly, cultivate that energy, get them to get into this war, and then die before they even reach Taiwan, get blown up by a missile, get blown up by a drone. You don't even make it there. How heroic would that be? Or I get sent to Ukraine and I sit in a trench and get blown up by uh, all the various ordinances that Russia has. I never even see a Russian. I never even made it well, out of the, the trench. the fact that you get mutilated, you know, yeah, it's, you don't get a proper burial. You're going to be bit, no one's going to ever see you again. Done. You won't even find your dog tag. You're at the bottom of the ocean. It's ridiculous. Like, way, that's the thing, though. The sad thing, though, is that there will be people that fall for it because here's the thing with propaganda. People assume that propaganda is aimed at people that are high IQ. It's not. It's aimed at the mean. It's aimed at people with 100 IQ or less, and ultimately are willing to. To fall for it, to I mean, let's be honest. Everyone wants to go to war. Like, let's if you're a red blooded male, you want to fight. You love fighting. That's something you want to do. And you're giving an excuse not only to fight, but to come off as a hero, to be like someone you know that people look up to. And th and that's what these people want, especially after being disenfranchised for what decades now. That's what they want. And, and so, like, the issue that I find that I hope we people have the good sense to interdict is if we do go to war and they do call on this population, that they hold back. They hold back and get political power. They they hold back their, their you know, how do you say, support, and they, they demand the repealing of certain, like, policies which disenfranchise them, you know? And that's something that I, I doubt really will happen. I think that they'll just go for it. Because they're just, I mean, that's the thing, is the average person's average. They're not capable of thinking like that. And for whatever reason, in America, we are not very good politicians. We're not good at thinking, well, if I do this, then I'm going to fuck myself over. Instead of thinking, okay, look, like, we have to play politically. We have to be Machiavellian in a way. We have to, like, withdraw our support and make it conditional. And that's something I think most people don't understand. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right on the money. I think there's a portion of the populace that gets it, especially those who serve in the GWAT. You know, kind of fool me once, shame on me, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, meaning that they got propagandized, fought the GWAT, got deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan. Now that they're older, they realize that was all bullshit, and they're not going to fall for it again. There is a yeah. segment of a population that are there that, that have that sentiment, 
but it's too fractionalized, and we they not they're not leveraging enough influence over the youth. We have to capture Gen Z. We have to capture them. And every com- all your comments just then were 100% uh, correct. And it, it's just sad that we have a moment right now in history, particularly white young white males in, in, in the United States, to send a very potent signal to the elite here that your propaganda no longer works. And that is more that scares them more than all the AR-15s we own. Because... If we show that we're not going to go to this war and we're not going to get conscripted and just get uh, slaughtered and disposed of, that we're going to stand our ground and stay here, then that, that immediately tells them that, one, the propaganda no longer works at all, and on the actual target audience. People think that propaganda is, it, you know, these leftists. No, the leftists are just nothing more than an agent, part of a propaganda machine, to get a reaction out of you, the right wing, right? And... Uh, uh, if we do that, it shows that all that was a failure and that they're going to have a conflict in the near future on their doorstep at them. And that scares them more because I don't think they really have good solutions to that problem. You know, a global conflict against Russia and China, they don't really care. Yes, they might lose some money. Yes, they might make things a little bit sketchy here for a brief period of time. But it's an opportunity for them to get rid of a problem that is much longer term. Okay, and if I would add, yeah, if I would suggest, if we were to have a, a like you know someone with enough competence to to make enumerated demands, things that are achievable under those conditions would be one, repeal Title Nine, two, uh, freaking end immigration, three, uh, send back illegal immigrants. It's so simple, and four. Impu- uh, impose fines on individuals uh, in the political class that have international ties, economic ties, sanctions, etc. That those are very like accomplishable material goals we can achieve if you withhold your critical support because they'll give. It. They have no choice. They don't have people. You, what do you think? Uh, you know, a hundred thirty pound. You know. Lesbian is gonna, you know, like do anything? No, like these people are not competent, and he should see the military man. You know, the modern military—it's it, incredible. Like, um, even in the Marine Corps, for instance, this this focus, this focus on emotional stability, on emotional this or that, which is just a—they don't teach you how to deal with negative emotions. What they do is they they teach you to indulge in it, which causes weakness, and it causes in a military formation. For instance, you know you're you're on a beach, you're attacking a headline. What you're you're going to be accepted for breaking down and crying, you know? And that's the thing people don't get. And the critics, like uh, women critics of of men, don't understand that there is a utility to understanding that you are fearing something or you're scared or sad or whatever, and repressing those emotions for performance. And that's something they don't get because obviously they can't understand that there are things beyond emotions, right? Because they think emotionally. And so ultimately, we're filling the military, or rather, we're actually falling dramatically short. The Army, for instance, has had such a huge recruiting lack that it set a record since 1985. You have to understand, this is a half-century problem, and they're claiming that it has to do with this or that, but the reality is people are getting out because of COVID, 
and because of the ramifications of what happened, what they allowed, and also because of the discrimination and because of how weak it is. I mean, you go and it's like you can't be a man. You can't be a soldier or, a, you know, strong, which is what the one career that you are emphasized to be, that it is a virtue to be left in this country, they take it away. Why do they take it away? Because they are not. They want political control at the cost of military uh, competence. And I would point to you to add in, in, in you know, to, to support my argument is that the rate of naval collisions at sea have increased. The rate of um, accidental deaths in military maneuvers have increased. The rate of going AWOL has increased. The rate of being incarcerated has also increased within the United States military. And on top of that, we have these crazy freaking, like, equal opportunity lectures that basically shames you for being a patriotic American. I, I don't even mean, like, being something, you know, quote-unquote crazy, like far-right or something. I'm saying, like, even normie cons, that's, that's denigrated. Even just to be an oath keeper or some, like, lame stuff like that, you are considered, like, an extremist terrorist. So why? Why would anyone support this, this regime? No one should support the war. And that's something that we're going to have to harp on and make sure that, like, if it's, if it's the seventh fleet that will be sunk, let's make sure that it's everyone that they wanted. Let's make sure it's the pink-haired people and they spill their grid's blood all over the Southeast China Sea and basically, they kind of learn their lesson, and we can liquidate a hostile elite, meanwhile also liquidating problems that we have domestically. Right, right. This is the time for us to make those kinds of moves. So anyway, you know, um, we've gone through uh, roughly, you know, two hours of uh, Peter Zihan's, you know, unpacking, you know, truth from fiction, propaganda from fact and so I wanted you to just give us a couple more key points, small points uh, before we just kind of wrap up this war room here yeah um, honestly we, 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 we hit a lot of the broad strokes and a lot of the, as well as a lot of the more in depth um, and some of the major points, um, some of the minor points that Zihan was making you know, saying how the Chinese health is in horrific condition. Um, well, we're not even doing as much manufacturing labor and hard labor and things like that, and America's health isn't any better. Um, and by the way, when China is no longer doing all that manufacturing and all the pollution and things like that, and they move to a consumer-led economy, the health standards are going to increase because you need your company to go to a service services-led economies, you're going to have more of the workforce in the healthcare services. So that's kind of like a dumb point that he makes. Like, it, it, literally the health of a nation can turn around very quickly, especially if they're not bogged down in working conditions in, you know, and poor facilities, right? So kind of like what happened here in America, you know, we had poor health when we were the manufacturing base of the country and pollution issues, and then all that went away when we all shorted it. Uh, and even then, we're still unhealthy, and so not kind of a dumb point that he makes there. Um, you know, Russia. You know, he, you know, he said that Russia's going to go away in ten years with their demographic issue. No, they're not. Even if they were to lose the war in Ukraine, they're still going to be a juggernaut in oil production. They're still going to be a juggernaut in 
green stuff and fertilizers, all of which helps China have access to cheap energy and food inputs that helps their economy. Um, and so that's why you know, this pairing of China and Russia is really what makes a pretty behemoth juggernaut. Um, you know, he made points about the lockdowns and how they were a total failure when I kind of feel like they weren't a failure. They were more of probably them doing a series of war preparations or gathering information about what their populace can handle because the sanctions would hurt. That's one of the main comments he makes about China is that if we were to sanction them, it would be a disaster for them. And I do agree. I don't see how they're going to compensate for the sheer economic um uh, ties that they have with the United States and how much they benefit from it. Um, I mean, the reason why we're even talking about them being a rival is because we allowed it to happen. We paid all this money and, you know, and they, you know, and put so much manufacturing, you know, it's one thing to make a, make a trade partner and help them develop a little bit more and help them, you know, provide some, provide some manufacturing, but the sheer amount of investment, the sheer amount of foreign direct investment and, and manufacturing that went to China was way more than anywhere else. And they took that money and now they're positioning themselves to replace us. So, go figure. Um, and, you know, there, there's no way they would be able to, um, you know, and I, I don't think their Belt and Road Initiative has gone as well as uh, they say it has. So that's definitely going to be a major challenge to China, but I feel like they have a cheat code, which is, you know, this hyper-ethno-nationalist communist regime, and you'll be surprised how quickly people fall in line um, behind a government force, especially once a foreign enemy is kind of, like, used as the uh, pinata. So, um, you know, and then he kind of transitions and talks about Mexico and how we need to continue to partner with them, and they're going to be this great, you know, stabilized, you know, stabilized country and economy in the future, and it's funny, it's like, how, why would Mexico become more stable? Well, one, they would have to deal with the cartels somehow, right, because you can't claim to be a stable economy without dealing with that issue, um, but another reason why they're stable is because they kept sending everybody that all their undesirables into America, offshoring and lowering their population and making it more manageable and sending people away, right? And now we have to reindustrialize our nation and we, we're going to need that cheap labor and so that's why we have all these immigrants flooding into the country. And he doesn't really mention that. He keeps saying, like, oh, we're going to, everything's setting up wonderful for the United States. We're in a great position. We're in a great position to do this, to do that. And... But yet we have such a horrible demographic issue as well, just like Chi just like Russia, just like the Eurozone, just like China. But how how is the United States regime solving it? All this migra migration from Central and South America, and I'm um, I'm going to be it's going to be interesting to see how these migrants will just take any kind of job. So oh yeah, we need these these chip many chip factories because the ones in Taiwan are going to be gone forever. Well, we now have a huge Mexican and Hispanic uh, workforce that can just we can just shuffle into these factories. So, it, just because we're getting reindustrialized doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a benefit to 
the American people, particularly those of us on the right wing, uh, those of us who are actual patriots of this country, okay, you know, you're just importing a, a migrant force, give, you know, and in giving them the job, which is still underpaying, under, which is still underpaid, which means it trickles all the way up th throughout the rest of the economy in the labor market. So it's still not, you know, I feel like that's what a lot of this migration is about, is that if we're going to reindustrialize and, and sanction China and have this direct conflict as well as economic conflict, you're going to need these workers from somewhere. And that's why our southern border has been so completely and under and uh, unsecured for so long and why they had to keep grabbing more and more people from, you know, Honduras and El Salvador and Ecuador and just keep funneling up here in these huge waves because that's what they're going to do. They're going to be like, okay, chip factory there, injection molding factory there, okay, these migrants there, these migrants go here. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean jobs for the actual Americans who've been sacrificing for generations now in this country, right? So that kind of wraps up, you know, he talked a little bit more about Mexico. Um, we can, you know, talk about that maybe another time, but um, Mexico is kind of like our Russia. There's lots of cheap energy there, oil. There's lots of cheap natural resources. Um, or rather, we get cheap natural resources from Canada um, to the north. And, you know, the United States could lose this war, and it can lose its position against China and Russia. But if we were to go internally, you know, move into... Uh, move us from a globalization to actual internal nationalism and focus on the actual health of the nation, particularly the host uh, race that built this nation, we can have an empire again overnight or, in a, or within a few generations. I'm more curious about what this nation, you know, what the oligarchy that are in power who are, anti, who are clearly anti-Western kind and do not, don't like the host race that built this nation, um, what their actual intentions of the future are. And like we said, I don't think this is a position where we can nip that in the bud and actually force that transition earlier instead of being sucked into another global conflict that doesn't look like it'll be, you know, if, if anything, we, we won't win. We'll just get a, you know, kind of like a draw, right? And then it cr creates a new paradigm where we just go back to being the way things were, where all your media is against you, all your institutions are against you, the law is discriminatory against you, and you have all these migrant forces now working in these factories, you know, clogging up our cities, clogging up our countryside. Like, you know what I mean? That, that future doesn't look great either. This is a moment in time, a transition in eight and an age, um, and a a paradigm shift that we can actually capitalize and steer it in a totally different direction for us here in the United States. You know, Eurozone, they're going to have to make their own decisions. Other nations are going to have to make their own decisions. But us here in America, this could be a huge federal moment that we can capitalize on. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think that ultimately this is what's kind of in the future. I feel like this is a lot more sober perspective than Zihan, who's obviously a propagandist for the regime, uh, would want you to perceive the situation to be. 
obviously we are certain we have a certain intrinsic bias and which has to be acknowledged and but at the same time i the the way that Zihan has been uh, portraying the situation geopolitically um only is used in such a way that's a propagandist perspective we're here we're trying to parse facts from fiction anyway thank you so much celtic war chief thank you for coming back on I would like to bring you back on, if you're okay with that, for the uh, Mexican operation that's going on and the uh, Guatemalan operation that's going on that's uh, targeting cartels um, and see how that affects us as part uh, of, of, you know, organized crime and what's going to happen with the United States politics in that, you know, region. Sure. That sounds great. Great. Hey, thank you so much, brother. Thank you for coming on. This is Lance's Legion. This is General Lance signing off.